1: Good afternoon and welcome to the Sunday edition of the Best of Fight Back. More of what you want to hear from the week that was. The WE Charity controversy heated up this past week with testimony in front of the Commons Finance Committee by the WE co-founders Craig and Mark Kielberger and then later in the week by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau himself. Both the Prime Minister and his finance minister, Bill Morneau, are being investigated by the Ethics Commissioner for possible conflict of interest violations related to their family connections to We Charity. Prior to Trudeau's testimony, Fight Back devoted Wednesday's show to the testimony by the Kielberger brothers. Did they put the scandal over that half a billion dollar contract to rest or spark further questions? Did they clarify the prime minister's role in it? Was this a cozy quid pro quo deal or, as they insisted, a case of we just trying to help the government out in a crisis? And what of the questions about their own charity and its relationship with their for profit entities? Joining Libby's Nimer to answer these questions, Michael Cooper, Conservative Deputy Finance Critic, Strategist Robin Sears, Principal of Earnscliffe Strategy Group, NDP strategist Kim Wright, Principal of Wright Strategies, Conservative Strategist and President with Enterprise Jason Leader, and Conservative Finance Critic Pierre Polyev.
2: We got some explosive revelations. Uh, First of all, we learned that the Trudeau family has received uh, hundreds of thousands of dollars of additional expenses reimbursements from the Kilberger network, more more money than we originally knew. Of course, we already knew that the Trudeau family had been paid over $300,000 in speaking fees. Now we know that accommodations, uh, transportation, and other expense reimbursements add up to in the neighborhood of Uh, $100,000. One reporter calculated that we're now uh, around almost half a million dollars that the Kielbergers and the WE organizations have paid the Trudeau family. We also learned that uh, Margaret Trudeau only began getting paid for speaking after her son became prime minister. So you would think that if she had some expertise uh, to justify all the speaking fees, she would have been paid for that expertise before he took office. But uh, curiously, those payments only began after he took office. So you really have to wonder whether or not they were paying for her speeches or if they were paying for political power.
3: They kept insisting that uh, with that proposed deal, they wouldn't make a cent of profit. It was just expenses. Is that believable?
2: Yes, and it's irrelevant. You don't have to make a profit to make money weasel words. Uh, we know all kinds of people who own numbered companies that don't run profits, but the owners are, are, are multi-multi-millionaires. Why? Because they, can, they, they pay expenses through the organization to themselves. And as I proved in the committee yesterday, there's nothing in the contribution agreement to prevent the Kielberger brothers from paying themselves and dec- declaring that those payments to be expenses under the contribution agreement. In fact, one section of the agreement says that uh, they can pay salaries and wages without even keeping timesheets to show hours worked. So um, it's absolutely accurate that they wouldn't that, that the WE charity wouldn't make a profit. It's supposedly a charity. It's not ever supposed to make a profit. But that doesn't mean the people who control the charity can't themselves make money. And that's, what's, that's the issue at stake here.
3: Anything else on consequences that you're looking for? Resignations?
2: Well, Bill Morneau has to resign. He he broke the ethics act again, and uh, he did so flagrantly. Uh, I don't. Uh, I and, and so I, I don't know how what what to say other than that. You know, the guy personally intervenes to help get a half billion dollar contribution to a group that took him on a forty one thousand dollar illegal vacation. I, I don't know what if you that doesn't. Uh, trigger resignation. I don't know what does.
3: Let's bring in a pair of experienced strategists, Jason Leder, a conservative strategist and president of Enterprise and Kim Wright, Principal of Wright Strategies. Let's start with Kim. How did the Kielbergers do? Uh, wow. On about six different
4: levels, they could have one, uh, you know, checked themselves out a bit before they went on screen and, and maybe not use the uh, phrase uh, if, if even a bit of these things are uh, that people are saying about us is untrue we would you know be pale in the face well they looked pretty pale and they looked uh, it was not uh, the best video quality and, and they you don't want to come across slick on these things but the problem was that anyone looking at those screens uh, either they came across a bit smug uh, and they came across as, as a bit dodgy Yes 4 hours is a long time to be grilled by parliamentarians. Uh I I felt that they were in, in some cases and yes many of the members of parliament were were very pointed and and very aggressive at times uh with them but the response to the response from the Kielburgers should not have been nearly as uh, as smug and dismissive. Uh, these are parliamentarians trying to get to the bottom of things, and uh, and they were acting as if they were called to the principal's offices. There are consequences to these things, and, and significant ones for their business. Jason?
5: Well, Kim, uh, you you let off pretty strongly there, and I, I, I'm even going to pile on a little bit more. I thought they were brutal um, for a lot of different reasons, both in tone and substance. So I think Kim's nailed the tone side of this, which is, Especially the first two hours of this thing, they were—it was like they were in model parliament in, U, in the UN in high school. They were laughing, they were giggling, they weren't taking it that serious. It was a fundamental unseriousness to it, which I think was a real, a real problem. And then when they got combative in the second uh, hour, I think I think they did benefit. They were being cut off. Uh, you know, there was people sort of bullying them a little bit, which I think actually did benefit them a little bit. Nothing they did, but I think I think that gave them a little bit of room. But that, so that's the tone, but on the substance side, I gotta tell you, this, this sort of, uh, they had two main messages yesterday. One, we did it all for the kids. Number two, we weren't gonna benefit at all. That's the messages I think they were, they were trying to send. The second message, which is we weren't going to benefit at all. It just, it defies description. It's incredible. And I don't mean incredible in the right way, in the, in the positive way. It's like, listen, you're, you, you know, we've already heard that you, your bank loans aren't up to date. You've had to lay off hundreds of people out of your charity. You're obviously in some financial distress. The idea that, you know, I'm not saying they're taking bags of money out of there, but the idea that you're not going to benefit from an immediate $30 million Cash infusion, so you can hire some of your people back and keep your operations running. It's just, it's so ludicrous as a message that I think I had a hard time getting past it at all.
3: Robin Sears of Earnscliffe Strategies has done a lot of work with boards, both nonprofit and for profit, and he joins me now. How do you think the Kielberger brothers did?
6: I thought they displayed two very unpleasant young men, disrespectful, um, insufficiently serious, and uh, swaggering all things one should never be before a parliamentary committee as a witness.
3: Uh, yeah, I, I was wondering, I mean, I would have assumed that they would have hired someone like you to prep them.
6: If they paid anybody for presentation training, they should get their money back.
3: Anything else that you want to see come out of this? I'd like to see
6: the Canadian charitable community um, examine itself with some care about these issues of governance, transparency, accountability, um, because it is not uncommon that situations like this exist in other charitable institutions. They just haven't uh, stuck their foot in it badly yet. But everybody will who doesn't address these questions at some point, and better to start doing it now before you get caught, like the Gilberger
3: said. The deputy finance critic of the Conservative Party, Michael Cooper, MP, joins me now. What do you still have to know about? We?
7: Well, there's a lot of interesting issues with we, uh, including uh, a number of questionable transactions that have taken place in terms of the uh, acquirement of uh, multiple uh, properties in, in Toronto. Uh, there are questions about uh, transparency and how they run their organization. Uh, but really, our focus uh, is on uh, the Prime Minister on the finance minister, on issues around conflict of interest, and on how it came to be that this agreement was handed to we. Uh, It raises ethical questions, and at the very least, it raises questions about uh, uh, good governance and the competence of this government.
3: The consensus seems to be that uh, the finance minister will not resign as a result of this. Do you uh, see that?
7: Uh, He should. uh, If this was a normal government, he would, uh, but it isn't a normal government. We have uh, a prime minister uh, who uh, thinks there's one set of rules for he and his friends and another set of rules uh, for everyone else. And in terms of the uh, conduct of the finance minister, uh, if he were to resign, uh, then I think a lot of people would be pointing next to the prime minister because Uh, From everything that we know, uh, the Prime Minister's conduct is equally blameworthy to that of the Finance Minister, if not more so.
1: That was Fight Back's We Charity panel this past Wednesday. Michael Cooper, Conservative Deputy Finance Critic, Strategist Robin Sears, Strategist Kim Wright, Strategist and President with Enterprise Jason Leader, and Conservative Finance Critic Pierre Poliev. This is Zuma Radio's Best of Fight Back. I'm Jane Brown. On Wednesday, the Governing PCs at Queen's Park released details of the independent commission they've named to look into to the devastating impact of COVID-19 on our long-term care sector. 80% of the virus-related deaths were among our most vulnerable in nursing homes, giving Canada the worst record in the Western world. The inquiry will be led by Associate Chief Justice Frank Morocco, who has had a distinguished career, including as lead counsel for the province of Ontario in the Walkerton Inquiry and as lead prosecutor in the BREAK Securities Prosecution. But what will the commissioners tell us that we don't already know? And more to the point... Can we wait until they report next April when a possible second wave is just around the corner? On Thursday, Libby Snymer was joined by our long-term care panel of experts. Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association. Jane Medes, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly. And Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging.
6: One thing I was encouraged to see in the mandate was that commissioners are are encouraged to consider areas that should be subject to further action by the government in order to help to prevent the spread of the disease in long-term care. And so from CARP's perspective, I think what we would hope is that the commissioner would also look at the role of home care, um, the role that home care could play in, in, you know, supporting seniors in a pandemic. We know many families took their loved ones from homes during the pandemic. They struggled to do so because of a lack of support, but they felt that they had to. Um, You know these two sectors are so inextricably linked. We know that when provinces like Quebec, for example, increased pay for long-term care workers and not home care workers, it resulted in the number of people leaving the home care space. So I just think you can't talk about one without the other. And so with respect to the commission and the recommendations it puts forward, I would hope that home care would certainly be part of that.
8: Let's move along to Jane, your take. It's unfortunate that this isn't a full public inquiry. I understand that the uh you know, the uh, government wants this to be done quickly, and uh, that is probably why it's not a, a full uh, public inquiry. So, um, you know, the the problem with that is that you don't get parties being able to test the evidence, um, you know, to ask questions of people. A lot of this is going to be done um, probably behind closed doors. So if you look back at the SARS Commission, They had about uh, 600 people who came forward and spoke, but only, you know, a small number of groups actually did that in public. And so that is is concerning with respect to the kind of information and what the public will and will not know. And the same with the issues around some of the um, uh, confidentiality is whether or not, you know, we'll ever see any of those documents and exactly what happened. Um, during the you know during the early days, obviously the government has to move forward. We we already know some of the things that have to be changed, such as four bedrooms. But I think that the initial response to the uh, COVID in March is important to understand. And you know we know that you know a lot of the effort was put into hospitals. In fact, people were you know pushed into long term care who maybe shouldn't have gone there. So I think that, you know, what we really need to do is to learn from the whole process. We already have learned something, but I think that we really need to know exactly what happened everywhere, what the ministry did, what public health did, and, you know, how to prevent this from happening again in the future.
3: Donna, what are your hopes from this? Certainly, we, We've been very supportive of a process um, to to
6: help us understand what what worked and didn't work in the first wave, and it it really is important for our perspective to understand those other pieces of the system. So, uh, public health, the guidance uh, that we were getting on masking and testing, uh, we know that that this virus was evolving and, and continues to evolve. But what what impact did all those other pieces have on this? Uh, and I think to Marissa's point, where were some of those other pieces in the system? So if we think about uh, a systemic approach to how we support our seniors, uh, hopefully coming from this, uh, there will be the voices of families and, and, residents and staff and others, uh, who will be able to share their experiences and people from other parts of the system, uh, who can speak to what is seniors care need to look like on a, on a go forward basis. Uh, certainly we know what some of the root causes are and, and our concern quite honestly has always been that we're going to get mired in a process without that, that we'll have to wait for action to happen. And the Premier was very clear yesterday that we're going to do whatever it takes to make sure that we shore up our homes for a second wave. And and we know what needs to be done around prioritizing our seniors, uh, making sure those pieces fit together with, with testing and screening and surveillance, but also those partnerships, including with with home care. Uh, we can't wait, and, but we also have to make sure that the government does whatever it takes, and we make sure that they make the investments to make sure that we have staff, that we have supplies, and that these homes are safe.
1: Donna Duncan, CEO of the Ontario Long-Term Care Association, Jane Meadis, staff lawyer and the institutional advocate at the Advocacy Centre for the Elderly, and Marissa Lennox, Chief Policy Officer at CARP, A New Vision of Aging. I'm Jane Brown, and this is Zoomer Radio's Best of Fight Back. This past Friday, Toronto and Peel Region joined most of the rest of Ontario in entering Stage 3 of the COVID-19 Economic Reopening plan and while we are allowed to enjoy more amenities how do we best go about conducting ourselves during this change libby asked this of dr colin furness an infection control epidemiologist and assistant professor at the university of toronto's faculty of information along with dr Susie hota medical director of infection protection and control at the university health network
9: I think vigilance needs to remain through all the stages of reopening. So, you know, just because we are going forward to a different stage doesn't mean that we can um, go beyond that, first of all. Um, reopening doesn't mean that we're um, able to go back to what we used to remember as normal. And, you know, things like physical distancing are more important than ever to maintain when it's appropriate to do so or necessary to do so, as well as masking and other infection prevention and control type measures.
3: Dr.
10: Furness? I agree. I think any opportunity that we can have to limit the amount of physical contact we have, bars may be opening, that doesn't mean we need to go. So I think really trying to imagine a new normal in at least the short to medium term, where we're limiting physical contact despite the opening, I think would be safer and, well, you know, vigilance is the byword.
3: What do you make of the loosened restrictions on the numbers of big gatherings, uh, albeit with physical distancing. Uh, its It's gone way up from 10. Yeah, I mean, I think from my my perspective, if people
9: are able to maintain the distancing that's required, then it could be okay. Um, but, you know, it is opening up a bit of a can of worms. And, and the larger the gathering becomes, the harder it is to kind of monitor what people are doing and control what's happening around you. So it is a bit of a slippery slope. And I, I do think... Um, you know, over time, I worry about people losing their their vigilance and keeping up the physical distancing. So I think that's something we'll have to continue to reevaluate over time and make sure it's being done safely.
3: Dr. Furness, is that a mistake?
10: I am more concerned, I think, that there could be some confusion in the messaging. So if I know people's names, then it's 10 people. But if I don't, it's 50 in terms of what a gathering means. And I think it can can really lead, as as Dr. Hoda said, to a slippery slope. And I I, I also worry that we know that it's large gatherings that really cause bad outbreaks, that really cause big problems. And I would avoid those until next year if we could
3: there's masks and some people using shields. And I have heard from some people that the, the shield really isn't as good as, as the mask. Uh, who has a view on that? I guess my view is I don't
9: feel like we have enough data yet to really um, give us the kind of confidence that we would need to say it's either equivalent or it's uh, not as good or even maybe better than, than wearing masks. Like it takes years and, and, and quite extensive research to truly understand how protective some of these measures are. I mean, there's some potential advantages on top of masks that face shields have and that they provide some eye coverage, um, which uh, would protect you from, you know, if you get exposure to your eye. And, but one of the disadvantages is that, you know, some of your, the, the bottom might be open and if it shifts around, you may be still susceptible to some, some spray or exposure. Dr. Furness?
10: I agree. And I would think, furthermore, that because I see face masks being worn, face shields being worn rather high, remembering that the that main benefit of masks is keeping your droplets to yourself. Uh, face shields, don't, I don't think, would necessarily do nearly as good a job. But, but I agree, we don't have the data. I, until we have the data, I'm going I'm to say masks, not, not face shields, Se- seem to me intuitively to be better.
3: Colin Furness, what would you like to leave us with as we head into stage three?
10: I think the most important thing we can do is avoid crowds and avoid situations where people are indoors without wearing masks together. That's what COVID really likes. And I think we can have a lot of, quote unquote, normal life if we if we just really attend to that. That's what will keep people safe.
3: And Dr. Hoda?
9: Yeah, I concur with that. I think, you know, we it, these are all our choices to make. So we will do as well as we choose to do or as poorly as we choose to do. So, uh, you know, it's the the choices in our hands and um, I hope that we, we play it wisely.
1: Dr. Susie Hota, Medical Director of Infection Prevention and Control at the University Health Network, and Dr. Colin Furness, Infection Control Epidemiologist and Assistant Professor at the University of Toronto's Faculty of Information. I'm Jane Brown, and you're listening to the best of Fight Back. Fight Back with Libby Snymer brings you comprehensive coverage of the news stories that interest you and your reaction to them on the phones. Here are some of this week's Calls. Donna in Burlington phoned to talk about how best to improve staffing in Ontario's long term care homes.
4: Sorry, I don't remember the Premier of
6: Quebec's name, but um, he announced it's got to be over a month and a half ago that they had um, are hiring or sending PSWs to school, three month training. And um, we'll be paying them 42000 a year with benefits, retirement, full-time, not changing homes. And they've been there now, I think, almost two months, so they'll be ready in another month. And I mean, I thought that makes it a good career for someone to go into and get the training, get benefits so they can afford to live.
0: And why aren't we doing it? And now, Fight Back's Knockout Call of the Week. In fact, there were a lot of great calls this week, but the
1: winner of the Fight Back Knockout call of the week comes from Heather in Toronto, who told us about how her mother suffered a horrible experience in long term care during the COVID nineteen lockdown.
11: Just after Mother's Day, I called and I said, How is my mother doing? I said well she had a fall got a cut on her head and she was limping a bit, but we're gonna keep an eye on her. She seems fine. And then we went to see her at the window and they had her in a wheelchair. Now she had been walking before that with a walk. I said, why is she in the wheelchair? Well, you know, she said her her hip is sore because she's ninety two and they said she was tired and she likes to be in the wheelchair and went okay. And then a month later she's still in the wheelchair. They said to me, Well, we sent in for portable X ray machines just to recheck her hip, just in case, because we did not see the fall. Mm -hmm. And it came back, she's got a broken hip. She had been there seven weeks with a broken hip (laughs) in the chair, and they had been changing her, putting her into pants, all the time with a broken hip. Now, they never told us they were getting a portable x-ray machine, and we only found out because they had to call us to say, we think she needs surgery. She had the surgery. She was in there, ended up for like three weeks. Heavily drugged on hydromorphone, and she had lost 15 pounds. And by the time she got back to the home, and I actually saw her two days ago, she is basically not there anymore.
1: Heather, thanks again for calling, and we hope your mom's condition improves. That does it for this week's Best of Fight Back on Zoomer Radio. If you'd like to qualify for the Fight Back Knockout call of the week, phone us noon to one weekdays. Or if you have a comment, email us at fightback at zoomer.ca. Follow us on Twitter at Fightback Libby and have your say anytime on our Fight Back voicemail, four one six-three six seven. 9636 416 367 9636 I'm Jane Brown Join us again next weekend When we'll round up the best of Fight Back
0: The best of Fight Back Is produced by Jane Brown Justin Eacock, And Zeev Hadi With technical production by Kelly Robotham Executive producer Moses Neimer